Welcome everybody to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 253. It is Thursday, June 1st, and we are doing a Twitter space to recap this newsletter. We'll be talking about the ARC protocol. We'll also be talking about transaction relay over Noster. We'll be talking about bidding for block space in our series about mempool inclusion and transaction selection. We have Q&A from the Stack Exchange. We have Bitcoin Core 25.0 being released. And then we have a few notable PRs that we also covered in the newsletter this week. So let's jump into it. We'll do introductions. I'm Mike Schmidt. I'm a contributor at Bitcoin Optech and executive director at Brink, where we fund Bitcoin open source developers. Merch. Hi, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs on explaining Bitcoin to people. Gloria. Hi, I'm Gloria. I work on Bitcoin Core and I'm sponsored by Brink. Dave. I'm Dave. I'm the primary author of the Optech newsletter and commented on a couple of the proposals this week. Barack. Oh, hey guys, it's good to be here. So my name is Burak. I don't work any, anywhere. I, I, I'm the creator of Oric. I made it public like a few, few weeks ago. I'm a bit of a free bird, but I'm excited to be here and, and discuss further. Just. Hey, all. So I'm mostly Lightning developer. I'm working on L&D a lot over the past years and recently also gained more interest for Layer 1. Thank you all for joining us. For those following along, this is newsletter 253. You can look at the tweets shared in the space or bring up the full newsletter on the bitcoinops.org website, and we'll just go through that in order. The first item of news this week is a proposal for managed join pool protocol. And we have Barack, who's the author of this mailing list post and the idea for ARC, which I think was previously named or unnamed TBDXXX. So Barack, thank you for joining us this week. Maybe it would make sense for you to provide a high-level overview of the protocol and how it works, and then I think we can get into some Q&A. I know Dave had some feedback on the mailing list, and he was kind enough to join us here to walk through some of that feedback and potentially clarify his thoughts and some of the technicals of the proposal. So, Brock, you want to? Yo, you hey, sure. Yeah, sure, guys. That's Brock again. I'm the creator of Auric. I've, I think, posted the mailing list, the idea, 10 days ago. It is, it's an idea, right? It's in the, it's a new kind of layer two off chain scaling solution layer slash privacy tech idea. And it's in the early protocol iteration phase. I made it public on stage like 10 days ago, same day, posted the mailing list, had some feedback. People are excited, equally skeptical, which is great. So I think so far I did a terrible job <laughs> communicating the idea with the broader community, I think. But I'm not, I'm not a great communicator by any means. But what I can tell, Arik, I think I'm, I'm very confident that it's it's a great piece of tech and it can scale. It, it's, it's, it does a better job in terms of privacy and scaling compared to Lightning. There are some trade-offs, obviously, we can come to that. But I've been, it's something I've been working on like six, over the past, say, six months, more or less. So, I mean, if perhaps some of you know, I did some covenant research and development on Liquid for about two years and about a year ago I shifted my focus to sort of Bitcoin only lightning space 
I wanted to explore lightning and, you know, you know, see what we can, what, see what I can do with on Bitcoin based on my experience, covenant research and development on Liquid. On Liquid, I shipped like a, we, me, it was me and a friend of me, we built an AMM on Liquid. Obviously in Bitcoin, we don't have covenants, so we are restricted. I mean, script is, is a primitive language, it's, it's intentionally kept limited. And I, you know, about a about a year ago, I sort of wanted to address these problems, lightning pain points, right? Lightning has many pain points and has a huge entry barrier, right? The friction, end user friction and entry barrier to onboarding people. So like the, these two are main, has been always been main, two, main, two, main, two main concerns. And I, I think like, look, yeah, I started working on a lightning wallet idea like like three months ago to address these frictions, right? And I tweeted about it, it got some good reception. And obviously, it, I mean, the idea over time evolved into the wallet idea evolved into a new layer two, like a, like a new layer two, distinct layer two protocol. But it's, it's still lightning, right? Org is lightning. I mean, Org started off as a lightning wallet idea and it's still lightning. You can pay invoices, you can get paid from invoices. It's like, a, I like giving this subnet analogy Org is more like a subnet of Lightning. You can forward HDLCs to broader Lightning. You can get paid from broader. But internally, at, at the core, it's a different kind of design. I don't know what. It's not state channel. It's not roll-up. It's like a third category. I don't know what the name for this category should be. Some people give the coin swap analogy. Some people give, I don't know, a few other stuff. Like I, I'm not aware of these, like coin swap and all that. Again, I've been exploring Linux space for the last one year, more or less. So, and so I don't know. Arc is like a different kind of thing. Maybe it, it, but yeah, it is. It has similarities with other protocols. I mean, it has similarities with eCash. It has similarities with Lightning. It has similarities with Coin Joins. It has similarities with two-way pack sidechains. We can give a bunch of analogies. Yes, maybe to start like it has similarities with eCash because you know we it's based on VTXOs virtual transaction outputs. So we have a virtual UTXO set. We lift UTXOs off the chain. And just like how on-chain funds flow, you destroy coins, you just, you create new coins. And these coins are short-lived. We give each coin like a four-week expiry. Unlike on-chain, when you have a UTXO, you can go offline forever, it will remain there, right? Unless you're losing your keys, there is no expiry for UTXOs. Here, they expire <laughs> at some point, which I don't think it's a bad trade-off at all. Like if something goes wrong, a boat accident or inheritance-related issues, you can at least try to reach out your you know, service provider and claim for a refund. But beside that, so we have like, so we, we, we give a coin expiry for some, for obvi- for some for some good reason, <laughs> to to make the off-chain footprint minimal, when we want to like redeem them, when we close these sort of like VTXOs are like channels. I like giving this analogy to like Lightning is a two of two, VTXO is also a two of two, but but the difference, the main difference is in a channel, in a two of two, you sign a bunch of channel state updates, right, thousands of state updates, and then you can settle back on chain. On Arc, it's a, it's also a two of two, just like a channel, but think of just signing one state update, just one. From the two of two, and that state update gives the ownership. The ownerships it changed the ownership state. It, whether it's belong to it, 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 is it belong to me or is it belong to? Does it belong to the service provider? One or zero. So it's kind of like sending all channel funds into your channel partner in one. 
and then you push your liquidity into server. I mean, we call this server our service provider. It's like an atomic single hub payment. On Lightning, it's like you can forward payments across multiple hubs. On Arc, it's a single hub. It's like atomic single hub. Lightning is also great for inner hub settlements. You can open a direct channel with a large hub, like an exchange to exchange, transfers and inner hub stuff. Arc cannot do it. Arc is like from one party to the other and hub in the middle. So Arc is like a channel, but you spend you push all channel funds to the service provider, and the service provider push equivalent number of funds minus liquidity fees into the recipient end. You know, just like a single hub lightning payment. But now you're pushing entire money or entire funds to the, the service provider. <clears throat> so it has similarities with sidechains too. Like I mean, I'm talking about trustless two-way peg sidechains, hypothetical sidechains. It's it's like you have you peg in to protocol this piece of different software protocol layer two. You peg in, and peg in stands for lifting your UTXOs. You can peg into this protocol with your real actual UTXOs, and then you get one on one virtual UTXO. And this is what pegging is for. And when and when you peg in, you're in the system. And once you're in the system, well, you have a VTXO. You ha- you're running a piece of like wallet client software. It does coin selection and it joins a coin join session or coin swap session. So like you join a session, the, the service provider is also the blinded coordinator. So service provider is three things. They are blinded coordinator, coin join coordinators. They are liquidity providers and they're also lightning rodders. But their main job is to do the coordinated blinding, blinding, blinded coin join round. So, so you, when you make a payment, your client coin selects. We take source that you're spending, you join the coin join, coin join session, the next coin join section, session of your service provider. Then you have a new session in every, say, five seconds, five seconds. Again, it's a bit of a, it's kind of an arbitrary number. It's subject to changes. In fact, it's custom config. And it can adjust the fee market conditions. And you join a coin join session, just like how a coin join works, you know, like input registration, output registration, and signing phase, three phases. You know, so you coin select, you, you register for a, for your VTXOs, you know, under these different identities each, and then you get blinded credentials minus liquidity fees, and then you join the output registration, register for the payout VTXOs, but these VTXOs are also under a shared VTXO. And then in the signing phase, you anchor your VTXOs that you're spending into this coin join pool transaction using Anchortama contracts. And the coin join transaction ends up on chain, hits on chain, is very minimal in size, footprint minimal. It's like 500 VBytes, one or more inputs, three outputs. I think we can lower this down to two outputs also. And then you have a new coin join, new on chain transaction every five seconds. You know, while this may seem not footprint minimal at all, it is footprint minimal. I consider this footprint minimal because you can onboard a bunch of like millions of like these shared UTX can millions of recipients for that particular coin join rounds, if, if perhaps even more theoretically speaking. So upper bound limit, like on-chain upper bound limits, I mean the upper bound limit like is in theory infinite, but there is practical limits such as bandwidth and computation and all that. So there is some upper bound limit on this obviously, but uh, it scales a lot better. Like you can make a payment in a coin join. It obviously, anonymity set is everyone who involves in this payment. Unlike you know, coin joins, you know, they, they're mostly used for drug market use. I mean, that dark market use case here, yeah, it can also be used for that. But there's nothing we can prevent that. Like, yeah, it's also payments. Anonymity set is all. I mean, the the, the anonymity set is as large as the payment volume, so which is great. 
and you make a pin join in it. So you make an off-chain swap out, so to speak. Like you make an off-chain to on-chain swap out. And that swap out is an is an aggregate transaction by itself. It contains a bunch of other swap outs under the shared ETX. So maybe that's a cool, good one-liner. Obviously, you have the privacy benefits because it's blinded, blinded, you it's blinded coin join. The service provider in the middle cannot tell who the sender and the recipient is. Obviously, it's also footprint minimal. Also, it's also convenient to use because we don't have inbound liquidity here. Because you're making a swap out every time, on-chain, off-chain to off-chain swap out, off-chain to on-chain swap outs. You don't need to, you can receive without a second thought. Maybe we can come to trade-offs later or I can talk about the trade-offs also. Obviously, there are some trade-offs. The main one, there are two main trade-offs. Main trade-off is, is it's not, I mean, ARC payments. So if you're using ARC, to accept payments, which you shouldn't, in my opinion. If you're a vendor, if you're a merchant, you, you Lightning is better suited for you. You better use Lightning. Because if you're a vendor, you know, you demand instant settlement, right? You don't, you don't want fraud. You don't want chargeback. You want you demand instant settlement. I mean, hypothetically speaking, right, in the hyper-Bitcoin as well. So, and you're always self-hosting your POS terminal, whatever. So you demand instant settlement, and your cash inflows are predictable, right? You can... You can acquire liquidity, rent liquidity according to your needs. And you can obviously run this piece of specialized software, whether it's BTC Pay Server or, you know, Lightning Node in your POS terminal. You can do it. It's okay. You're a merchant, right? But for users, well, it's not. It's, it's chaotic. Like, you cannot predict what you're receiving in the first place. Like, we're, we're humans, right? We don't know what we're receiving. Like, sometimes I receive zaps, sometimes donations, sometimes remittances, sometimes regular money transfers, sometimes a payroll from a payroll service. It's unpredictable what my cash inflows are going to be. And and it's also subject to denial of service. Like if I am like someone, I, I'm like, I, I just got on board to Lightning, like, like i.e. in a hyper-Bitcoinized world, right? I'm more to Bitcoin, I got an orange pill, whatever. And like I reach, I have to reach out to someone, like a node on the protocol to ask them to open it, beg them to open a channel to me, like inbound liquidity, because I can only re- receive through this channel. And I'm, I, but I can be able, I can just lie. I mean, well, you can pay some fees up front, but really, like, I am asking someone to open a channel to me, and these channel funds, I mean, it's unpredictable how I'm receiving on this channel. Like, like talking at a large, large scale. It works today, yes, but at a large scale, like, I cannot, I can only promise, I can only promise to utilize these channel funds by inbound liquidity, but it, probably not, probably not. I may not be 100% utilizing, but most likely it's not going to be enough for me to receive because it's unpredictable what I'm receiving. And what happens is when you don't have enough liquidity, you receive a submarine swap, but submarine swaps are inherently unscalable. Anything that touches the chain is unscalable. And I always think in terms of footprint. I always think in terms of like global massive adoption. Lightning may work today, yes, because we don't have many users. Blockspace can handle that perfectly for today. You can open channels, you can ask to open channels, and you can... You know, open channels chargers, great. Is Lightning is great, but at a large scale, I don't see. I I fail to see how Lightning can scale at at a at a large sort of scale. But I can see how Arc can do it because Arc, we don't have channels. It's not state channels. You don't ask someone to open a channel to you. We don't have inbound liquidity. You receive what you what what the sender has, and liquidity provider provides that equal number of liquidity f- f- to the coin join transaction. So on Lightning, service providers provide liquidity to channels. On ARC, ARC service providers, they provide liquidity to coin join transactions, sort of different sort of designs. But one thing that Lightning and ARC has in common is they are both liquidity protocols. 
They're both liquidity networks. LSPs provide liquidity to channels. They provide liquidity. Arc service providers, they also provide liquidity. And then the second trade-off is obviously, yes, Arc uses liquidity less efficiently compared to Lightning, although liquidity is 100% utilized. On Lightning, you cannot promise it. Like, you can promise that. You, you might open a channel to someone. Liquidity is your own, own, your own end, but uh, you cannot promise, like, this, uh, the other guy just promise that you're utilizing these funds. But on Lark, they're entirely utilized. If sender is sending money to recipient, accepts, liquidity provider provides accepts equal number of liquidity. So it's entirely utilized. Also, Lightning is like a multi-hub payment sort of stuff. You draw payments across multiple hubs. Um, on Arc, it's a, because it's a single hub, like single hub payment, atomic single hub payment schedule. You only have one hub and liquidity is only deployed on that one hub. So I think like, yes, Arc may, may it may seem that Arc, yes, it is it, capital slash liquidity requirements are, are higher significantly, which is true. Like uh, it's like five to, I think three to five and maybe perhaps 10 X higher because you're locking up liquidity, like one way only. Yes. Like on lightning, you have a channel, you can move, move money in that channel forever. Yes. On arc. Yeah. It's like, you have to provide liquidity on an ongoing basis and it, constantly providing liquidity for four weeks because you're locking up every single time your liquidity to be unlocked four weeks later. And of course this four week time frame is also like a bit of an arbitrary number. It can it is adjustable like it can, it's manual config or it can adjust to to liquidity capital conditions but just to keep things simple i i just made that made up these numbers four weeks and five seconds so yes or you're locking up liquidity for for a long time for 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 an obvious reason <laughs> but but the trade-off there is yes you're locking up liquidity but because liquidity is entirely utilized 100 percent utilized and because recipient is always one hop away from the from the center, I think Arc may use liquidity as efficient as Lightning. Obviously, you have this convenience of inbound liquidity you receive without ever you know without having any setup. Like you just download this the software an Arc wallet, and you all you have a big is a Bitcoin address, just like how an on-chain address an on-chain wallet UX works. And Arc mimics the on-chain UX, obviously. You distribute TXOs, you create new ones, you have an address from which you can get paid. It's a dedicated address and it's going to be your NPOP. <laughs> so it's like a, a pay-to-NPOP using silent payment style tweaking. So whenever you send a payment, you know the, the NPOP public key, this is like Shinar public key, the recipient, and you add a tweak, add an ephemeral value to it and send this ephemeral value to recipient out of band. Oh, I think. Go ahead. May I, go ahead. May I jump in here? So you've given us a pretty broad overview of your proposal, and I would like to try to summarize it a little bit. What I took away from it is that you can have very fast off-chain payments between participants of the same ASP. They have great privacy, even against the ASP, because the payments are mixed at every hop. It onboards users very easily because you can receive without making an on-chain payment first to open a channel or something like that. You can directly become a user of an ASP. And then on the downsides, I have a couple questions. So um, one one is, so you, you want to have a responsive design or a responsive UX where payments 
between participants on the ASP are going to be settled or not settled, locked in pretty quickly. And for that, you propose that there's this pool transaction every five seconds. So I I see how this will work very, very well if you have a lot of users and it will scale well, because then the cost of the pool transaction is, of course, shared by all the participants that send a transaction within those five seconds. But what what really what I don't see is how do how does an ASP jump from not having any users to having enough users that they can pay for this every five second pool transaction? Or even if you make it a little longer the interval, you you need at least one or two payments within the time frame. But if you only get one payment and then try to be responsive. The, the payments will be fairly expensive at first in order for the ASP to even break even on their cost. So how, how does your proposal go from zero users to being sustainable cost-wise? Is it sort of like you need a lot of investments at first to scale it up, and then once it's big, it'll it'll carry itself? Is that the idea? Yeah, so, so the on-chain fees, yeah. So who, who covers the on-chain fees? Let's address that. It's the users who covers them. So users pay two, two fee tiers when they make a payment. They pay, they cover the on-chain fees for themselves, plus the liquidity fees, the liquidity provider charge. So liquidity providers are safe. Liquidity providers are not paying the fees for their own pool transactions. They charge fees from their users. And if there is no pool, like if there is no users, there is no pool transaction. Obviously not. If there is no coin joining users, there is no coin join transaction. But if there is at least one, one user who wants to make a payment and joins a coin join session, there has to be this coin join transaction. And because if that coin join transaction is minimal, like 550, 60 B bytes in size, and that user, that single user pays fees for it, which is like paying a regular Bitcoin on-chain transaction, which is not a bad deal. Obviously, if you want to run an ASP, you have to run a like uptime server with some locked up liquidity, like with some on-chain funds available to you, like available on-chain funds to provide liquidity further. You should you you have to make sure you have enough funds to provide liquidity for the next say for four weeks on an ongoing basis. But if you don't if you end up having no users, well you're perfectly safe. You're not covering the on-chain fees. Users cover them for themselves. And if there is no usage, you just lo- unlock your liquidity after four weeks. Just, there is the, there is no risk for you. And the initial onboarding Yes, like if you have only one user, well, you're not, I mean, few users, you're not making much of a profit. Yes, same goes to Lightning too, but ASPs are perfectly safe to make that clear. On-chain fees are not paid by them. And obviously, the more users we have, the cheaper the fees become on-chain fees-wise because the fees for that shared DTXO full transaction are shared among other participants, i.e. if on-chain fees are like $10 and we have like 100 participants, each pay one dollars. We have thousand participants. Each user pays ten cents dollars. Ten cents worth of Bitcoin. No, I understand that, but what I don't understand is like, where does the first user come from? If you only have a single user within a time frame, the coin join is not going to mix anything, and they carry. They have to pay the whole fee. So you would want to have multiple users, so the fees are shared, so the coin join is useful, but. What's the incentive for the first person to start using it, right? So if you, it, it's both more expensive and less beneficial at first while there's few users 
while it only becomes beneficial and cheap to use if there's many users. So I think it has a bootstrapping problem. You see what oh, I mean? Yeah. So yeah, actually, like Arc, I designed Arc as a Lightning Wallet, right? You can think of this as an as a Lightning Wallet. You're just like a user, like a one user who you're downloading a Lightning Wallet, Arc Wallet. Yes, you deposit Bitcoin to it. Well, you pick into it because for when you onboard first, there is no like VTXOs in the existence. So you pick in on your own. Pegging in is as simple as on funding an on-chain address. And what you can do is just just use Arc Wallet to pay Lightning invoices to to announce to like in you know, a Starbucks, in El Salvador, whatever. Really, just pay lightning invoices. You're not using, obviously, if you're the first user, you're not using it for the coin join, mixing your coins, or doing internal transfers because there is no other user. <laughs> you're using Arc solely to make lightning payments. Oh, that's cool. Okay, that's what I was missing. Sure, if you start using it as a lightning wallet, you have already an incentive to make a payment every once in a while, which you can also use to double down as your refreshment payment and get around the four-week timeout. And then you do join the the pool transaction. You get the privacy benefits if there are more users. It will still be somewhat more expensive at first, though, to to be part of the service, right? Because yeah, currently like we're not paying one dollar fifty or so for a lightning payment. Yeah, so if you're the first user, you have to pay like a like a regular on-chain transaction, just like a, what like an on-chain wallet pays. I want to take the opportunity to bring in Dave Harding, who did the write-up for this item this week and also had some interaction with Barack on the mailing list. Dave, obviously, we've, we've gone through some of the, the overview here. I want to give you an opportunity to, to, one, clarify anything for the audience that you think would be valuable to clarify, and, and two, ask any questions of Barack that maybe you didn't get to on the mailing list so far. Sure, absolutely. So, Brock, first of all, thank you for making the proposal. I always like reading about new stuff like this. This is a very interesting idea. So, in a lot of your discussion about this, you you compare this to Lightning, and so I've I've kind of looked at it through that lens. And you were going into this earlier. I think we may have got a little sidetracked, but the downsides of this proposal, and you were saying that you know perhaps merchants shouldn't use this for receiving their own payments is that when a payment is sent using ARC, it needs to be confirmed. The, the, the payment that the service provider makes, the ARC service provider makes, it goes on chain, it starts out unconfirmed like any other transaction, and it gets confirmed. So it's security for a third party, someone who doesn't trust the service provider, someone who doesn't trust the sender. The security of that payment depends on on-chain confirmation. Is that, is that correct? Oh, yeah. So, by the way, that's correct. Um, the senders, by the way, cannot double spend it, unlike on-chain payments. On-chain payments can be double spent by the owner of the UTXOs, right, inputs. But uh, here, it can only be double spent by the service provider because the coin join that hits on-chain has, like, one or few inputs and, and, and ASP or the single SIG owner of these inputs. Apart from that, yes. If you're a merchant, yes. I mean, you and IBI, ideally, you're not trusting anyone. That includes the service provider you're choosing, you're using. I mean, the sender actually using is using. ARC, yes, you should not accept payments, ideally, in the short term to accept ARC, ARC payments unless we have, like, this penalty mechanism I mentioned on the Bitcoin mailing list. But we can come to that in a second. But Lightning is, again, yes, better suited for payments because you have instant finality on Lightning. Here, you don't. Finality in order to like you, in order to consider a payment final, quote unquote final, you need to wait for on-chain confirmations. And for vendors, yes, this is a risk because vendors do not want chargeback, right? 
But for end users, it might make sense. I mean, obviously, if you're an end user, you should wait confirmations too. But what you can do, I mean, ideally, you receive payments from friends and family anyway. But also, you have, when you receive funds, like from an end user standpoint, like you receive funds from someone you don't know, it doesn't really matter. Like the funds are available to you right from there. Like how you can change unconfirmed transactions, like in a mempool, you can hand over VTXOs, how you can hand over zero conf VTXOs to friends and others. Like, and you can in fact pay lightning invoices with them. So I receive a VTXO in a coin join. It's not confirmed. It sits sits in mempool. It can in theory be double spent by the service provider. Yes, and I don't consider it final. But the funds are are available to me, and I can pay lightning invoices. Pay lightning invoices with them through the same service provider. Because service providers, again, they're also LSPs. And the service provider was the only guy and the only party who can double spend my transaction, my incoming transaction. But the same guy, the same party is also the lightning router. And I wrote payments through the same party in 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 with you know in their with, by corporate yeah you know, with their corporation with their corporation yeah so for but for end users I mean for vendors yeah I think you should not accept payments on Oric unless we have a penalty mechanism I sorry I I I should follow up with our convo our mailing list on this so if we have a hypothetical opcode called opxor the bitwise logic opcode previously disabled or opcat concatenation opcode like we can constrain nonce in, in, a, in a signature uh, this is hypothetical like future extension thing uh, but i've made peace i've made i've made my peace with that i mean i think arc is great as it is but if you are to bring like a like penalty mechanism we need these opcodes to constrain nonce and if you reuse your nonce the asb reuses your nonce in a pull transaction anyone can forge your public key but i can as a user redeem like claim my previously spent VTXOs, just like an, I'll have an inbound liquidity works. You can like you can penalty the channel liquidity here. You can penalize your channel partner. In this case, channel partner is your liquidity provider, service provider. I can forge signature from the two of two because VTXO is a, is a two of two with a time lock, time lock back to back to myself. And then from that VT, but VTXO, the shared VTXO holds a, also has a time lock back to the the, shit, the the service provider for week timeout for week time lock, and I can because the for and I can forge signatures from the two of two to claim my funds. The service provider cannot collide with the miner or service if service provider is a miner themselves. Like your concern in the mailing list doesn't work because the time lock is not over yet. The four four week time lock is not over yet. And within this time frame, for week time frame, as a user, I'm the only guy, I'm the, I'm, I'm the only party who can forge signature from the two of two because this two of two collaborative path and the VTX. So it gives me high precedence. Dave? I didn't, go, I didn't quite catch all that. I think we can probably save that particular yeah, discussion sure, for sure. the mailing let's, list. Let's, let's follow uh, up on the mailing list. Yeah. So I guess I, I was just, you know, trying to think about this in comparison to Lightning. So you're... Your concern here, as I understand here, is a big part of this is liquidity for everyday users, right? That's that's your yeah, that's, that's a huge correct. part of your concern here, is right. And so, you know, I'm just thinking through Lightning, and I think we kind of already have the feature set there that you're looking for here. So, let's say we have two average everyday users. We have Alice and Bob. Alice wants to send a payment to Bob, but Bob doesn't currently, and they both use Lightning. 
but Bob doesn't currently have enough liquidity to receive Alice's payment. And so what Alice can do is she can open a new channel to Bob and she can do a, a push payment is what they, I think they call it in Lightning, where the channel is opened in a state where Bob receives all the funds. So I just want to walk through this really quick how this works in Lightning for the listeners is that in Lightning, a funding transaction is just a two of two multisig. It's kind of like exactly what ARC is, a two of two multisig. And as long as Alice knows Bob's public key, she can create that funding transaction without any interaction from Bob. She can just create the, an output for a regular transaction as a regular Bitcoin transaction. Bob doesn't need to be online at the time. That transaction can get confirmed without Bob's input. And then in the initial state of the channel, Alice can create that, again, offline without Bob's participation, and then send it to him through an async communication method, like email, you know, just an out-of-band communication. Again, like ARC, she can send that initial state, which is just a signature. It's just some data, and it's Alice's signature saying, Bob, here, here's one BTC, you know, in this initial channel state. And so for Bob to trust that, he has to wait for confirmations. And so... Ignoring the scaling aspect, which I can come back to later, but ignoring the scaling aspect, I think this looks very similar in user experience to ARC. Bob can trustlessly receive money on Lightning Network by waiting for a certain number of confirmations. It doesn't require his interaction, and it can be done using out-of-band communication. What do you think, Burek? Is okay, that... so... Okay, so, the, so you're saying like Alice is a user, Bob is a user, and, and the, like Bob, I think, doesn't have enough mail liquidity, so Alice opens the channel to Bob. But is that, is that correct? Or Alice is a service provider of something? Or, or Alice is just an end user? Alice is just an end user. She's okay. just an every, Alice okay. and Bob are just everyday okay, users. Great. But do you guys realize what kind of UX assumption is this? Like Alice is an end user, and Alice is going to open a channel, like literal channel to Bob, like channel... Like channel liquidity management is already a big problem, and like we yet we are asking Alice to this wallet software. Alice is opening channel to Bob, and assuming Alice has enough on-chain funds. I mean, opening channels and closing channels they don't only scale, not in terms of on-chain footprint, and not only in terms of convenience, but literally like because of the inbound liquidity problem. What you're describing is yeah, one way to mitigate it. Yes, it might work in theory, but in in practice. Like a user opening a channel to other user, it just doesn't work. And that's what literally Arc tries to solve, like offloading complexity from end users. Like end users should just not ha- should not deal with anything, no complexity, no channel management, no nothing, no, no management, no liquidity, no concern. And, and let's offload this entire complexity to the service provider in the middle who can take care of everything for you. Yet, as a user, I retain my sub-custody. That's literally what Arc tries to solve, like uh, offloading the complexity from end users. I, I guess I just don't understand where the complexity here is because Alice, first of all, she needs to have funds to pay Bob. That's going to be true with any trustless protocol. She already has to have the money. And that money can be, for Alice, it can be on-chain in her on-chain wallet or it can be off-chain with splicing, which is where we're getting pretty close to splicing in at least two or three implementa- two implementations of LN. So Alice needs to have the money to pay Bob. And if Bob doesn't have a channel whether he's using ARC or he's not using ARC, he's just using regular LN, he's going to have to wait six confirmations to, or however many confirmations he wants to receive that money. So I, I think the, the UX here is exactly the same, 
whether we're looking at ARC or we're looking at Lightning. It's not a liquidity management here because Bob doesn't need to have liquidity to receive an on-chain transaction. And a channel funding transaction is just an on-chain transaction with some extra data sent out of band for that initial state. Yeah, so what you describe involves like a, like a loss of friction. The main friction being like assuming always have enough on-chain funds to open a channel to Bob. And that's a big, big, big assumption, UX assumption. I think I, ideal in an ideal world, everyone should have one unified balance, off-chain balance, not on-chain. Because, I mean, it's not convenient. Like, also, it doesn't scale. Opening channels do not scale. Also, like, oh, oh, there's another thing. From Alice to opening a channel to Bob, obviously, Bob needs to wait for confirmations, yes. And that, I mean, that also goes to Auric. But on, on, the, on the scheme you're describing, for Bob to receive money, yes, it has to wait confirmations. And, and it has to wait confirmations to forward the payment that payment further. On Auric, the user, any user, doesn't have to wait confirmations to wait the forward that payment further. Forwarding as in, like, paying another invoice, paying or making internal transfers. Because Auric uses ATLCs instead of HDLCs. The, the, a double spend attempt breaks the atomicity from there. A double spend attempt... If there is a double spend attempt, the sender, in this case, always gets a refund. On ARC, ARC, ARC receives a refund too. But on, on ARC, if there is a double spend attempt, so on ARC, like I can, there is no premium, right? We don't have HDLCs, we have ATLCs. And as an entity, Bob, in, the, in this case, like in the same example, ARC, always opens a channel to Bob. In this case, always is the service provider, not, not an entity. That's one thing. There is no friction. And again, a central hub takes care of it for you not an end user. End user doesn't have to have any hustle, no, no nothing, no friction. And a service provider takes care of it for you, that channel opening, so to speak. And that's kind of how ARC works too, yes. Like you have a coin join, coin joins, and you have a new sort of channel in a coin join, yes. So end user is not taking care of it. And the channel, like I'm, I'm receiving funds, I'm Bob, I'm receiving something, some funds from Bob, so from Alice, Alice is in the service provider. And I don't have to wait for, for confirmations. I can I can literally pay a lightning invoice with them, just like how I described. This doesn't work on lightning because on lightning, someone opens a channel to me, the channel is zero conf. If I'm not waiting confirmations, I mean obviously if I want to make payments, some like like another payment with a with that with with that with those funds, uh, and I don't want to wait for confirmations, obviously, because if I want to make a payment, that channel liquidity has to be available on my end first for me to make another payment. And in order for this to work, I, I mean, I don't want to wait. If I'm not waiting, I have to reveal my premage, reveal my premage for the payment. But when I reveal my premage, the sender, sender like Alias in this case, can double span my channel, the channel she, she opened to me, or it could be a service provider, doesn't matter, yet takes my money, yet, yet the sender's money because I revealed my premage. So it's like, it's like, two, it's like a double span on ARC. It's not a case. There is not only like one entity like Central Hub taking care of for you, like the channel liquidity management. Also, it's convenient to use because you don't have to wait confirmations to forward a payment further. I'm not sure I follow this argument because if someone opens a channel to you and they fund the channel and send you some of the initial balance and you make a payment through that channel opener, the only money and the only counterparty that can lose money is the other side because you're gonna pay through them out. So they're basically giving you credit and you are using that credit immediately. But I think we we are already 45 minutes in. I think we would want to wrap 
the discussion a little bit. So if you both have some concluding thoughts on the debate or, or the conversation, maybe you could try to, to move towards a final thought. Sure. I, I think, again, I'm just going to say this is a really interesting proposal. I think it's going to be fun for the next few weeks for us to explore the, the edges of it and see how it compares to the existing solutions. And I'll try to post on one of the mailing lists my thought for how ARC compares to channel funding so that maybe Burke and I can go into this more detail later. So uh, thank you, Burke, for, uh, for this really interesting idea. All right, cool, guys. Thank you. So I'll follow, I'll follow up on our previous convo like from a week ago, and we'll, we'll, we'll move from there. Sure. Thank you both. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Brock. And folks who are interested can go to arcpill.me for more information and also check out the mailing list post. And I know Brock is working on GitHub repository for some of the documentation that people are interested in. So keep an eye out for all of that and we will cover in the Optech newsletter accordingly. Next item from the newsletter is transaction relay over Noster. And Yost, you, you posted to the Bitcoin Dev mailing list some prototype that you had been working on based on an idea from Ben McCarman about using the Noster protocol for relaying transactions. And I know folks most commonly may be familiar with Noster as the basis of decentralized social media platforms, but can also pass messages that are not necessarily related to social media posts. And in the context of this discussion, it sounds like some of the messages that could be passed around are Bitcoin transactions or, or group of transactions like, like packages. So Yost, do you want to explain the idea a little bit more and the, the prototype that, that you have going? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So for for background, like the the way you could see this is that traditionally Bitcoin transactions are relayed across the Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer network to miners. And apparently, but I'm not one of those people, there are people that are friends with miners and they're able to send them direct transactions directly by, by email for, for inclusion in a block. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to have also like alternative means to reach those miners that are accessible to anyone. And then the Carmen, he, he, he came up with this NOSTAR standard to, to relay Bitcoin transactions. And also to me, that looked like the, quite like a, a suitable alternative transport mechanism, but it doesn't need to be NOSTAR necessarily. Like yesterday, I started experimenting with transaction relay over Twitter. Like, why not? Like somebody also commented there that maybe miners should be sort of scavengers just scarring the, the internet, trying to find anything that, that pays fees that allows them to build a better a better block and not restrict themselves to P2P and possibly email, but just look wherever transactions show up. Yeah, so, but this Nostra idea, I think it's particularly interesting because in Nostra, there's also ways in the protocol itself to do anti-DOS. So there are Nostra relays, for example, that require a, a fee to be paid if you want to post there. And if you misbehave, I assume your key will be banned, something like that. So yeah, if you can reuse that functionality that already exists to make it make this relatively safe to do, it seems, seems like a good option. But the main idea here is just to, to explore alternative relay mechanisms for, for Bitcoin transactions to not only rely on the P2P network. Gloria? Hi, yeah, I found this really interesting. So thanks for working on this. And I just kind of had some like clarification questions. So are you thinking like Noster would be another decentralized network that would relay transactions? Or are you thinking just kind of 
more methods for minors to like receive or have people submit transactions to them directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, well, both actually. So like an alternative decentralized network for transaction relay, but the, the main ideas, as I mentioned, just to provide alternatives, increase resiliency. Let's say there is something with the P2P network that makes it so that transactions cannot be propagated for whatever reason. Then there are like fallback mechanisms in place that work in a completely different way, possibly. Mm, what kinds of kind of, I'm imagining kind of censorship vectors or maybe just inefficiencies. Like, are there examples in particular that you're thinking of? Well, I'm now just going to make this up right now. Just the the main idea here was to just resiliency. It can't be bad, it seems to me. Yeah. But let's say it's possible to sort of like block P2P traffic for, for Bitcoin nodes or that is like a firewall is instantiated somewhere. If the whole system like the connection between users and miners is also possible across different transport mechanisms. Like that wouldn't be like an, an, an instant problem. Like you can just fall back to any of the others or even better, like anytime you want to broadcast a transaction, you just do it through three different like medium. Mm. So you do broadcast on P2P, you do it on Noster, you do it on Twitter. Yeah. And smart miners will just look for everything because it increases their chances of picking up the best transactions, even if one of those mediums is is blocked. Okay. And what did you mean by DOS concerns? Because, yeah. yeah, So, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. So suppose, suppose a miner would just open up an endpoint for anyone to submit transactions to their mempool. Like maybe they are worried that they get like so many transactions flowing in there that they need to start managing that or basically they are they are DOS on their endpoint. And with Nostar, like this is what I imagine how this will might play out in the future. You have these relays and they are already trying to specialize in DOS protection. Like they also do this for, for social media, I believe. Like at some point there were a lot of free Nostar relays and they were spammed heavily. And they started experimenting with these lightning fees. So if you, as a miner, only connect to Nostra relays that have some kind of protection in place. And I would also say that if you connect to Twitter, you're basically relying on Twitter as the anti-DOS mechanism. Like if you want to use Twitter, you need to, I don't know what you need to do, give your phone number or something like that. So the idea is the same, that there, there's like another service that makes sure that the, the traffic, the, the flow is filtered. And then you just subscribe to that. So you don't, as a miner, you don't need to worry so much about that. Oh, I see. So you're thinking of DOS mostly as like computational resources that could be exhausted through validating transactions. Yeah, yeah, that's all I was thinking. Okay, mm-hmm. oh, and and network bandwidth, I suppose, it would be kind of included in that. Yes. Okay. Merch, you have your hand up. Yeah, I I have two thoughts on this proposal that I thought I'd put out there. So. One is, I I think that you mentioned in the context of your proposal that one of the concerns is, of course, if you have commitment transactions that cannot be relayed on the network because their own fee rate is under the eviction fee rate, and thus most mempools just don't even accept that transaction into their mempool, and it's impossible to CPFP that transaction because when the parent transaction doesn't make it into the mempool currently, we will not accept the child transaction either. So clearly, you're concerned about us being unable to relay packages and that being an an detriment to to Lightning nodes right now, especially with the fee rates and block space demand being all over the place. So I I think I I appreciate that concern and, and 
well, Gloria's been working on this for a couple of years now to to fix in in full on the mainnet, but clearly that's also still taking time and is not quite where we want it to be. So in a way, I, I perceive this as a rallying call to to put more resources toward fixing package relay. The concern that I have with this proposal is. I think for the Bitcoin network to remain as decentralized as possible and especially to to maintain the censorship proper censorship resistance properties that we like in the Bitcoin network, we need to make sure that all the juicy transactions and all the fees that are available in the system are readily available to all participants. So if we want people to be able to jump in and become miners because the existing miners are not confirming the transactions we want. Uh, our response needs to be that we make need to make sure that everybody gets all the transactions and new mining pool entrants have access to all the fees that everybody else has. So in, in the past few weeks, we've seen proposals for basically private mempools and new out-of-band mechanisms that would make it harder for for miners to learn about all transactions and that might unfairly favor big mining entities because it would be easier to just submit transactions to the biggest three or five. So I'm a little concerned on that aspect. What what do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I understand what you mean, but... I think for Lightning, there's already a problem today. Like with these high fees, people actually ran into that into the issue that they couldn't like get their commitment transaction confirmed. So basically, there's funds at risk. And if you don't have to choose between just letting that problem be versus having like a temporary alternative transport mechanism to get them to miners, even though it might indeed, as you say, not provide the the global access that the P2P network might might provide. I yeah, I think it's still better than, than 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 having nothing. And also in the case where packages would relay over P2P, where all that work is completed, I think there's still value in having redundancy, like having alternative mechanisms, even even if they are not as easily accessible as the P2P network, just just in case as a, as an insurance. And, and and finally, I don't think this is something that you can stop because if miners are incentivized to pull transactions from as many sources as as possible. But what can you do about that? You cannot talk about it, but it might happen in the event anyway. And in fact, it's already happening, isn't it? With miners reading emails containing transactions and putting them into blocks. So yeah, there's also so much you can do in preventing that. Dave, I see you have your hand up. Yeah. So when I read Yo's post, what I really thought of as how it would work is that we would use the Nostra re Relay for exceptional cases. And we would do our best to optimize traditional P2P relay for average cases. And if we saw a use case growing on Nostr, that would be a good sign that we should be optimizing P2P relay for that case too. We should, you know, it's, it's just kind of a, it would be a feedback loop kind of thing. So that the Nostr relay, although they might end up using it, people might end up using it for all their transactions. We would really want that network, that sort of side network for exceptional cases, you know, people who wanted to do weird stuff or, or, you know, a situation where like we don't have package relay yet in a deployed node and people need it now. So they're, they're turning to Nostr. And in my replies to the post to, to the mailing list, I tried to think of ways that we could just, you know, kind of solidify that, how, how to make that more realistic by 
thinking about how we could just have people, instead of sending individual transactions, just send whole candidate blocks to miners and have them figure out, you know, hey, this is a more profitable little block I'm mining right now. Maybe this is worth it. So that was just my thinking was that we really want to keep P2P Relay. We want to keep that working really well, but it's good to have an alternative mechanism for cases where P2P isn't working for people right now. Yeah, I just, mm-hmm. could I add on to that, if that's okay? There's, I think there's a lot in the peer-to-peer transaction relay that maybe people are not aware of that kind of builds towards these design goals we have of censorship resistance and high accessibility of being able to both join the network and broadcast your transaction or be one of the people who takes those transactions and produces blocks. And there's a lot of privacy stuff that's built into our transaction relay in addition to the kind of DOS and network bandwidth and cash usage kind of concerns that are maybe a bit easier to kind of plug into something like like Master Relay. Yeah, and I agree fully with, with, with Harding that if, you know, there's a lot of adoption of alternative mechanisms and of submitting out of band or privately, that that we should take as a sign to improve the peer-to-peer transaction network, transaction relay network, so that we eliminate these kinds of inefficiencies. The, yeah, I, I mean, ideally package really just works, but, it, you know, we're just not there yet. <laughs> Yost, did you have any final thoughts or things that you'd like folks who are listening now to experiment with or provide feedback on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the other thing I've asked to bring up, we've been talking about package relay and and maybe getting package relay sooner by using a different mechanism that's where it's easier to implement, at least temporarily. But I think the other thing is about these non-standard transactions, like we had some discussion in the PRs about that as well. And of course, there's like aspects of non-standardness that are good, just protecting their historical reasons, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also a non-standard transaction that actually end up in a block. For example, these, these huge JPEGs, or the other one is like usage of the of the annex. And something like the, like you, the annex, it's, it's perfectly valid to use it in blocks, but it feels like that it's sort of gate-capped by the policy that, that, that nodes use. And you could also say it's sort of subjective whether this is a good thing or, or, or not. And yeah, I can also imagine that miners just looking to maximize fees, they would be happy to accept transactions that use the annex, for example, but it's not possible because the P2P network doesn't, do, doesn't relay it. So I can also see like some interesting dynamics co- coming up if you use alternative relay mechanisms that do not have these limitations as much. Could you provide an example of how the annex is being used right now? Because that's news to me and probably a bit of an issue with future updates. Yeah, it's not, it's not, I think it's not used. Actually, I scanned the chain and there are zero like annex transactions that, that have been done if I didn't make any mistake there. But there are a lot of ways it can be used. So for example, these inscriptions, I think with the annex, you don't need to do the, the commit reveal scheme anymore, but, but you can just... Put your put your like additional arbitrary data in in a in a single transaction. You don't need two transactions anymore, so it makes things more efficient on the chain. And I think in various places there's a whole list of things that you could do with the annex. And indeed, as you say, you could say like, nah, we cannot do that yet because we need to think about what we want to do with with it first. But on the other end, the, the consensus doesn't doesn't limit usage of the annex. So maybe if you want to do more thinking, maybe it shouldn't have been introduced in the first place. 
I think one of the reasons we don't enable features like that in P2P Relay that might be used in future soft forks is because a miner who is accepting those transactions might create invalid blocks after a soft fork. So if we start using the annex, we start requiring it for a particular format and somebody tries to jump a, a JPEG in there, it might violate that format. And if the miner hasn't upgraded their software during a soft fork, they're going to create invalid blocks and they're going to lose a lot of money. So it's bad for miners to generally ignore those sort of standard policy that's reserved for soft forks. So that's the reason it's not done in Bitcoin Core. Now, if somebody is dumping a lot of money there and the miner wants to enable it on an ad hoc basis, yeah, maybe that makes sense. But as a policy, we want to have a policy that removes as many foot guns as, po as possible and not allowing or not encouraging miners to create blocks that have transactions that might violate future soft forks is one of the ways we remove those foot guns. But for a future software, wouldn't this limitation then not apply just from a certain block height onwards? Or isn't it, it, it would, so, it would, so it would but, but the miner hasn't upgraded their software. They're going to continue to accept and continue to build blocks that include transactions that now violate oh, yeah. the new That's rule. Yeah, well, it's not that softworks happens like every other month or so that you just don't see it coming, right? Yeah, but the idea here is we want a softwork to be smooth and that not everybody has to update on the same day. Or like you could have just like 5% of people like taking a few extra weeks or a few extra months or something and they would still be fine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, but I don't really understand then why it blocks weren't made blocks with an annex were, weren't made invalid initially like why was that annex introduced if you cannot do anything with it like but maybe i don't have enough a layer one knowledge to really it, understand this yeah so there's a lot of kind of protocol development where it's like oh you know we're def we're gonna leave 32 bits to define 32 versions and we're just defining version one because we want to leave room to define 31 more versions and for now, these versions don't have any meaning, but we're giving ourselves room to change things in the future. Mm -hmm. the, the issue with making it invalid right now would mean that anybody that is not upgraded at the time of the soft fork activating would get forked off the chain when we start using it, right? So mm -hmm. anyone that hasn't upgraded in a while would just become cut off from updates from the network. And that's why we generally like to go from everything is allowed to a restriction in our soft forks, where anybody that has old software still can follow along because the majority of the hash rate is just enforcing more rules now. While if we first disallow something and then allow it going forth, we will just, the people that continue to enforce the disallowance will just be forked off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. I get that. I get that. But still, you could say that the the idea that that annex should first be further defined before it can be used, it is subjective in a way, right? Not not every Bitcoin user necessarily needs to agree with that and not every miner needs to agree with that. That is that is generally correct, yes. If a bunch of users and miners started using the annex, we would probably have to start making our rules keep that in mind. So it would restrict the design space for future updates if it gets much use now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it does feel a little bit like a ticking timer 
because maybe it's just a matter of time for this to happen. And hopefully before that happens, the desired structure for the annex is in place already. I would very much hope that anybody that starts using hooks for future design upgrades would start talking about that on the mailing list and with other protocol developers before making pushes on the network with using these deliberately left for future update things. So I th I think putting it out there as, oh, this is free to use is sort of a detriment for all of us in the future. Yes, thank mm -hmm. you. Thank you for joining yep. us. You're, you're welcome to stay on. You may have some opinions on some of the other items we discussed in that newsletter. But thank you for, for joining us. All right. No problem. Next segment in the newsletter is related to our series on transaction relay and mempool. We This is part three. We spoke about in part one about why we have a mempool at all. And in part two, we talked about how transaction fees are an incentive mechanism for miners to include your transaction in a block that is limited in terms of the amount of block space. And now in part three here, we're outlining strategies to get the most for those transaction fees. Merch, I know you're one of the authors of this week's series. How do you think about bidding for block space? Yeah, so... As we know, the demand for block space has been a little different in the past few months. And I think that every time we see these peaks of block space demand and the fee rates shoot through the roof accordingly, it drives people to adopt efficiency improvements that have been outlined and available for a while. So, for example, in the 2017 run-up, we saw that a lot of people started using wrapped SegWit very quickly and then later also started transitioning to, to native SegWit because the fees were so high and they, they just started moving to, to using a new address standards. So at least the future UTXOs that they were receiving would be cheaper to spend. So in, in our column this week, we outline a little bit the mechanics of building transactions, which parts of the transactions we have the most leverage to, to influence when we build our own transactions. We also point out how using more modern output types will save you money, especially when block space demand is high. But generally, the more modern output types take less block space, so you'll pay less fees for them. And we especially also talk about reprioritizing of transactions. So there are two main mechanisms to do so with CPFP and RBF, and we go a little bit into the trade-offs. So that that's just roughly the overview. I think I can dive into more details if if you think that's useful. Yeah, I think it would be I think it would be useful. And also, I want to make sure that that Gloria can can chime in as well. I know she was a, a co-author of this segment. Gloria, any thoughts so far? Well, Merch is the coin selection guy, so I think he's the perfect person to talk about this. Um. All right, let, let, <laughs> let me go a little more into detail. So when we build transactions, the header bytes of the transaction are basically always required. So and they, they just change a little bit, whether you're building a non-segwit transaction or a segwit transaction. And then the input counters and output counters will get slightly bigger if you exceed the magical border of 252 inputs or outputs, then you need a few more bytes on the input counter or output counter. But other than that, the you can think of the transaction header bytes on a transaction to be a fixed overhead that everyone that 
wants to build a transaction has to pay. Regarding the outputs, generally there are payload. We want to make a payment or multiple payments. So we know already which script pub keys we need to pay. And we know already what amounts we want to assign to them. We can pick, of course, what output type we use for our own change output. And we can try to avoid a change output altogether if we pick our inputs in a, a smart way. But generally, the outputs are also very inflexible because those are the, the things that we aim to create. And thus, they're predetermined by, by the payments we want to make. So finally, the inputs are actually where we have a lot of room for flexibility. With the inputs, of course, we, we want to be thrifty, especially when the fee rates are high, we want to minimize the weight of the input set. We can do that, for example, by using modern output types. If we use a pay-to-taproot input, that will cost less than half in block weight than, for example, a non-segwit pay-to-public key hash input. And if we then are sensitive to the fee rate in how we approach coin selection, we would, for example, use as few as possible inputs at high fee rates and as lightest inputs as we can. While at low fee rates, we might want to be looking ahead and say, if we have a super fragmented wall wallet, already use a few more inputs and the heavier inputs like the old formatted output types. We would want to prefer using those at low fee rates because we can then spend the more costly and higher weight inputs and consolidate them into bigger chunks of modern output types to save funds in the future when the fee rates get high. So it's sort of, you, you could think that you would want to optimize on every single transaction to build the smallest input set. But even back in 2016, when I wrote my master thesis on coin selection, we saw that service providers and wallets that use this strategy would just very brutally fragment their UTXO pool and set themselves up for situations where later when they wanted to create transactions, especially at high fee rates, they would suddenly have no option other than picking a huge input set with dozens of inputs and pay a huge fee, right? Especially when when you have ground down all of your inputs to small pieces and you then want to make a big payment, you just have to include a bunch of smaller pieces where most of it just goes towards the fees of paying for that input and li there's little benefit to, to actually funding the transaction, but you have no other funds and that's what you need to do. So you you want to sort of find a middle path where you are very thrifty when the fee rates are high, but then when the fee rates are low, you're you're looking ahead and already cleaning up cleaning house a little bit. The other thing is of course I think that especially with with the huge adoption of pay to taproot now, I hope that more wallets are gonna be able to send to pay to taproot outputs and also use them for inputs. I think for multisig, there is the biggest savings, obviously, because even with modern output types, you still have the actual two or three multisig, for example, written out in an output and input, and it takes more block space to do so. But if you know that two keys are more often used to make this bend, you can immediately make that your music key path spend 
and then have the same footprint as a single SIG. So I'm pretty happy to hear that, for example, services like BitGo already have on-chain support for music and can, with their two or three multi-sig setup, make payments that look like single sig on-chain. And they'll they'll essentially, even if, they're, if their user switches over from paid to witness script hash, will save something like 40%, 43%, I think, on each input at the same cost for their outputs. So I, I would just say you you have to have both a long-term perspective in your UTXO use and a short-term perspective. You want to switch over to more modern output types if you want to save money. And then finally, the the game of getting confirmed in the first place means that you, your transaction has to bubble up to the top of the mempool. Miners generally include everything they see in the mempool from the top one block into their block templates. And when they succeed, you get your confirmation. So at some point, your transaction has to be among the first block of transactions waiting. But you basically have two strategies getting there. One is you just overpay in the first shot. And then even if there's a slow block, you're pretty sure that you get confirmed quickly. The other way is to start with a conservative bid and then to to bump up the priority of your transaction if it takes longer than you want. And for those, we have two mechanisms. One is the sender or the receiver, anybody that gets paid by a transaction can do a child pays for parent transaction. And this is nice because the TX ID of the original transaction doesn't get changed. It's open to the receiver and it's fairly simple to implement. A lot of wallets have support for it, but it's kind of bad because you're in a situation where your original transaction didn't get through because there was too much block space demand and other people are outbidding you. And now you have to add more transaction data to this package in order to get the transaction through at a high fee rate. So you add a second transaction that you also have to pay for at the high fee rate, and you're basically already in a high fee rate scenario, right? So more efficiently generally is if you can to use RBF to completely replace the original transaction and make a conflict. So your replacement transaction has to use at least one of the same inputs Generally, you would include the same payments, maybe even batch two or three transactions together to combine the payments into a single transaction and then only pay for the payload once, only have a small set of inputs to create all of those transaction outputs in one transaction, and you outbid your own original transactions with a higher fee rate and a higher absolute fee in order to to replace them. So I I wish that more wallets would generally build their transactions signaling replaceability and have options to bump transactions directly so users can make conservative estimates first and then bump up as needed. And I think finally what we also mentioned in the article was, of course, especially if you have a high-volume wallet, you can build your transactions in that manner in the first place by batching payments, multiple payments into a single transaction, because then you only pay this transaction overhead 
for the header transactions once, and you might be able to get away with a single input for many payments and a single change output for many payments. Because every time that you create a change output, of course, you incur a future cost as well, where you have to spend that UTXO later too. So if you split up many payments into uh, separate transactions, every time you pay for the transaction header and almost every time you'll pay for the change output and have to spend the change output later. But if you make a batch payment, you only get that, you, you share that overhead cost across all payments. Yeah, sorry, I've been talking a lot. I think I've covered most of what we wrote in our ad article. Did I miss anything? Any questions, comments? My comment would be really great job of convincing a ton of Bitcoin tech and best practices that Optech has been recommending over the years into one explanation, including batching, consolidation, selection of inputs, using modern output types and some of the new tech like music, all into one verbal explanation, but also also the write-up. So applause for you for that. Gloria, anything to add before we move along? Yeah. Great, great stuff. Next week is on fee estimation. So feel free to tweet any questions you have about fee estimation. Try to answer them. Next section from the newsletter is Q&A from the Bitcoin Stack Exchange. And so every month we take an opportunity to, to pick out some of the most interesting questions and answers from the Stack Exchange and, and surface those in the newsletter. We have five for this week. The first one is testing pruning logic with Bitcoin D. And the person asking this question is attempting to do some testing around pruning and is wondering the essentially the best way to do that. And conveniently, Lightlike points out the debug only, and I think it's a hidden option, fast prune configuration option that uses smaller block files and a smaller minimum prune height specifically for testing the pruning logic. So interesting configuration option that, that I hadn't seen before that I've thought might be interesting for folks. Next question is a question that Dave asked, what is, which is governing motivation for the descendant size limit. And Suhas responded, and, and Dave, maybe since you asked the question and, and sort of had an angle here, maybe do you feel comfortable sort of summarizing an answer here? Well, just to, the, the question was, I was actually, I'm doing an update on the book Mastering Bitcoin. And one of the things we wanted to add to the new edition of the book is stuff about CPFP fee bumping. And to do that, I also wanted to add a section about transaction pinning. And so I was looking at the rules that end up with us having transaction pinning problems. And I was trying to figure out why exactly we have these rules. I'm sure it's documented somewhere. But, and, and actually, Sue has replied with, with uh, some of the mailing list discussion where it is documented. But I was just sitting there trying to puzzle this out in my head. And I said, hey, why not ask a question? And I got an answer from possibly the best person ever, uh, especially with this subject. And so Suhas's answer was that, like you, you summarized, that we, we have two algorithms that are running simultaneously in Bitcoin, not simultaneously, but two reasons that we need to look at the amount of transactions that are related in the mempool at the same time. And the first one of those is pretty easy to understand. It's for helping miners find the best set of transactions to mine in a reasonable amount of time. And I think we discussed that quite a lot 
on, not we, but Gloria and Merch on last week's recap podcast and in last week's entry in the mempool session. So anyone who's interested, go look at that. The other reason is eviction. So since I think Bitcoin 10, 0.10, we've had a constant sized mempool or maximum size mempool. So the mempool can get up to be 300 megabytes in size, which is about 150 megabytes of transactions, which in olden times used to be about one day worth of transactions. And we don't let it get any bigger than that. So our node, so that the, the computer running our node doesn't run out of memory. Back in the day, it could run out of memory, which was bad. But if you're going to do that, that means you got to kick transactions out of the mempool every once in a while. And so Suhast explains that we have these two algorithms and they're kind of the inverse of each other. We have a, an algorithm that tries to figure out which set of related transactions will provide us the best fee. And then the reverse algorithm, which says which ones provide us the lowest fee, which ones are not worth keeping in the mempool so we can kick those out and keep the most profitable ones in the mempool. And to do that, in a reasonable amount of time, we have to limit the number of operations. As Suhas explains that those algorithms can be quadratic in scaling. So every time you double the amount of transactions they consider, you quadruple the amount of work. So that's his answer is that 25 is essentially more than 25, but the, the rules for 25 are reasonable limits within that quadratic scaling. And if that isn't a good answer, yeah, Gloria can maybe give more information if anybody is curious. Anything to piggyback there, Gloria? Oh, no, I was just laughing because I go through the same thing every time when someone asks me what the descendant limit is, and I say it's 25. Well, it's 26 sometimes if you have carve out, but it's 25. <laughs> That's why I was laughing. Next question from the Stack Exchange is around running a bigger than default mempool. Folks may see that the default mempool has resulted in a full mempool lately with a lot of unconfirmed transactions out there and and maybe a an initial naive response maybe hey i'm going to help the network i'm going to increase the size of my mempool to be larger than the default so that i can accommodate all of these transactions that are outstanding merch you asked and answered this question why might that not be a good idea yeah, I, I don't want to say that it's not a good idea in that sense, but I think that people misunderstand when they think that it will benefit the network. So generally, our mempools are meant to make transactions available to anyone that wants to be a miner. And we want to make sure that especially all the juiciest transactions get to everyone. However, we have a bunch of other effects there that the, ben the mempool benefits with as well. So, for example, we will cache all the validation of transactions that we have in our mempools, and we will relay transactions only when we see the, them for the first time. So every time a node learns about a new transaction, it will offer it to its peers. But if we have very different sizes in our mempools, people will keep around transactions longer than everyone else. So if they get rebroadcast, they will, for example, not relay them again because they still have them, right? So if someone offers me a transaction to my mempool that I already have, I will not request it for them. And I will also not announce it to all my peers again because I already have it. And on the other hand, if 
people mine blocks with transactions that nobody knows about anymore because everybody else dropped them from their mempools, then these blocks will propagate more slowly because we use a scheme called compact block relay where we essentially only send the list of ingredients to a block and everybody just rebuilds the block from their mempools if they have all the ingredients. But if transactions are missing, we will have extra round trips with asking back to the peer that send us the block for those transactions. So uh, we we want our mempools to be as homogenous as possible while making available all the best transactions to everyone. Everybody should also drop the same things and enable people that currently don't signal replaceability yet to make replacements and for those replacements to propagate smoothly. Or if stuff needs to be rebroadcast because it fell out of most mempools, that it propagates smoothly. So it's sort of a misunderstanding when people think that running a bigger mempool will benefit people. They often think that their node will offer the same transactions again to other peers when they become relevant, but that's not the case. We do not ever rebroadcast transactions another time unless we learn about them afresh or, of course, if we include them into our block template, become nominated to be the author of the block by winning the distributed lottery, and then, of course, packaging them into our block, then we would sort of rebroadcast them as part of the block. Gloria, I probably missed something. Do you have comments? Not particularly. I think maybe if you're a miner and you're interested in remembering transactions for longer, you wouldn't want to run your get block template on a huge mempool node. But yeah, there's, I fully agree. Like the biggest thing was I think people thinking that they were going to rebroadcast the transactions that they we're still keeping and therefore that running a bigger one was was better but in fact you become a black hole when they do rebroadcast because you won't re-download it and so you won't forward it again so yeah having a bigger mempool than average is is not helping the network in any way just feel free to just keep it 300 megabytes next question from the stack exchange is what is the maximum number of inputs or outputs that a transaction can have. And this is actually a question that was asked in 2015. And the top answer currently is from Gavin Andreessen. And Merch, you provided an updated answer, which includes different calculations of, of inputs and outputs based on the SegWit and Taproot soft forks being activated. Folks can jump into your answer for the, the details there about you know, what would be the, the max number of inputs and what would be the max number <clears throat> of outputs. But I'm, I'm curious, how did you even come across this old question? Somebody asked on Twitter because they were doing a podcast or listening to a podcast where that question came up. And I saw that we had that question already on Stack Exchange, but since, of course, 2015 is a long time ago, and we've had since activated the SegWit soft fork and the Taproot soft fork, there's a lot of new commonly used output types on the network that are more block space efficient. So while the limits are backwards compatible, or I should say forwards compatible to old nodes that don't understand SegWit, we are actually able to, to have a lot more inputs and outputs on every transaction now. 
even though they are still within the same or forward compatible standard limits. So also the original answer did not include actual numbers. So I, I calculated that if we limit ourselves to commonly used payment types, so nothing fancy like up true pay to witness script hash inputs or up return outputs or stuff like that, we want to have a standard transaction that only uses either single sig or multi-sig constructions, then we would be able to have a transaction with slightly more than 3,000 pay-to-witness public key hash outputs, and we could fashion a transaction with a little more than 1,700 inputs. So I think a lot of people might be surprised how many inputs and outputs we can have on transactions, and uh, that's the context in which I think that is interesting. I don't think that we'll see a lot of transactions that actually approach those limits. You just jinxed it. Next question from the Stack Exchange is, can a two of three multi-sig, can the funds that are locked in a two of three multi-sig be recovered without one of the X-pubs? And folks may be familiar if you've done, if you use some tooling around software like Spectre or Sparrow, that part of the backup process is, is making sure that you have these output scripts in addition to backing up the keys themselves because both are required to spend in the case of using, I guess, modern or common multi-sig outputs, which would not include the bare multi-sig output. Merch, for, <laughs> I think you've answered almost all of the, the, the questions in the Stack Exchange this week. You, you recommended using an output script descriptor to back up the condition script. And you also noted, I think, that if there had been a previous spend using that same set of script conditions, that you, you could actually recover the funds, but otherwise that, that you would need a backup of all of the, the pub keys. Is that right? Yes, but I think that the misunderstanding or concern that is the greatest in the context of multisig is a lot of people misunderstand that when, for example, you have a two or three multi-sig setup, you only need two of the public keys and two of the private keys, or rather just two of the private keys in order to spend your funds. But the problem with that is we use hash-based locks on our outputs that you have to prove that you know the, the original input script that the output creator had in mind, or rather the recipient had in mind when they requested the payment to that output. And so the the thing is, if you only have two private keys, but don't know how the input script was constructed, for which you need all three public keys, you will be unable to spend your funds. So a multi-sig backup necessarily also has to keep all public keys. So the optimal way of backing up a multisig, if you want to have it in distributed locations, would be, in my opinion, to have a backup of the construction of the input script that includes all of the necessary public keys and then one private key with each of the backups. So if you retain two of the backup shares, I should say, you will have all of the necessary private keys, but you also know how to construct the input script. So, yeah, if you ever want to make your roll your own multi-sig, 
I think that got a lot easier now that we have output script descriptors because the output script descriptor will include that information. And just be sure that you keep an output script descriptor with your private key backups if you do multisig. Next section of the newsletter is release and release candidates. We have one this week, which we touched on briefly last week, which is Bitcoin Core 25.0 which is a major release for Bitcoin Core. Gloria, I think we touched on last week, you mentioned the example of addressing the issue of a, of a Raspberry Pi becoming a fire hazard. And I think that was related to, is that related to the blocks only configuration memory fix? Or was that one of the a different fix unrelated to that? Oh, I don't know. Gloria seems to have stepped away, maybe. Maybe I can take this one. So I think that we saw an unprecedented amount of transactions in the network recently, and the, the transaction submissions were very high. And we found that there were a few performance inefficiencies on nodes, and all three of the recent releases, the two-point releases, 23.2 and 24.1, as well as the new major release 25.0, include a few performance improvements regarding just huge transaction loads. And I think that's that's what we were talking about last week as well. Is there anything else that you'd like to highlight from the release, Merch? Sorry, I don't have it in front of me right now. I was trying to pull it up. But I think that the, the main point is that Miniscript support is moving forward. You can now assign Miniscript transactions that use pay-to-witness script hash-based Miniscripts. I think in almost all cases, there's like a small little thing that, that might not work yet. But so people are using that already to to make more complex output script descriptors. For example, look at the recent announcement of Liana Wallet from Miami, which I think sounds very cool if you want to have built-in inheritance planning for your for all of your outputs while you're using your wallet. It's an open source project, so I'm I'm not getting paid to show this. And I think the other interesting thing was there is a new use case for the compact client-side block filters. So if you have a index for those, you may also know them as the LND implementation neutrino nodes. Use these. You can now more quickly scan for wallets that you import by looking at your compact client-side block filters. You can think of compact client-side block filters as basically an index of what is included in every block. So by just having this table of content, you can way more easily skim what blocks you have to look at in detail in order to import a wallet, and that's implemented in this release now. I think that's the biggest, coolest new stuff. We'll move on to the Notable Coin and Documentation Changes section of the newsletter, and at this point, I'll solicit anybody who has a question or comment. You can raise your hand and request speaker access, and we'll try to get to your comment or question before we wrap up the newsletter. First PR this week is Bitcoin Core 27469, speeding up initial block download when using a wallet. And it sounds like there is a performance 
optimization that was implemented with this PR such that if you, you are using a wallet that has a known birthday, meaning there were no transactions applicable to that wallet before that birth date, that you can skip some scanning on blocks before that birth date. And obviously that would, would free up some resources to be doing other things and not checking blocks that would clearly not have any information about your wallet. Merch, I had a question for you on this one. Does this impact rescanning or is this just during initial block download, if you're familiar? Yeah, I was just scrolling through that a little bit. Forsy specifies further down in the comments of that PR that it actually is only during IBD. So the idea here is if you have a wallet loaded, then you not only process the block in order to build your, your chain state and your transaction index and what other indexes you have you have and catching up to the chain tip, you will also look at every block's content to see whether it's relevant to your wallet. However, with our wallet backups, or rather the wallet.dat file contains a birth date. So if it, for example, specifies that it was created only in 2020, there's absolutely no need to look at all the transactions before 2020 because we would never have created an address before that and never received any funds to the wallet if it's only been created in 2020. So my understanding from a very rudimentary glance at it is we are only skipping this extra lookups for wallet context during the IBD up to the time that our wallet actually was created because we don't have to look for stuff that we could have never received anything in. Next PR is Bitcoin Core 27626, parallel compact block downloads. And it, it sounds like that when, if I'm running a node and I receive notification of a new block in compact block format from a peer, I will then attempt to download any transactions that I need that I don't have for that block from that same peer, but there's potential that that peer is slow for whatever reason and not able to quickly reply. So it, in that case, we can use another node that has also already obtained the block and is more quickly able to, to give us the transactions that we're missing. Merch, did I get that right? Do you have anything to add? Yeah. So basically the idea is this. When we use Compact Block Relay, we're only transferring the table of contents of the block, and the recipient will rebuild the block from the ingredients that they already have in the mempool, right? We touched upon this earlier today already. And if you are missing transactions, you still need to get those transactions. So basically, you will have a short TX ID that tells you, now include this transaction. And then you're like, wait, I don't have that in my mempool. Hey, note that I announced a block to me. Give me that transaction. Now, if, for example, a block was received by one node first and they push it out to all of their 125 peers, hey, I have this new block, and everybody then asks for all of the missing transactions because, I don't know, somebody put some huge inscription into that block, then they might be bandwidth constrained at that point to try to provide that data to all of their 125 peers. Well, 124, because they must have gotten the block from somewhere, right? But you know what I mean. So this allows, this new patch allows us to 
Then the second note that maybe was the first one that got it from the first announcer, uh, that also then announced that they now have the block, they basically announced with that too that they have all the transactions that are, that are in that block. So now instead of just waiting for the first node that announced the block to us and whose block header and compact block we accepted to also give us the transactions, we're going to go sideways and ask other nodes that also signal to us that they have the complete block to provide us the missing information. And this should help, uh, especially with block relay, when there's a lot of transactions that are not readily available in everyone's mempools, to to propagate some faster through the network. Bitcoin Core 25796, adding a new descriptor process PSBT RPC. Merch, can you explain why we need another processing of PSBT RPC and how it interplays with some of the other RPC commands related to PSBTs? All right. So PSBT stands for Partially Signed Bitcoin Transactions. We basically use that in the context of creating multi-user transactions. So, for example, coin joins, or if you have multiple devices that need to sign off on stuff, or if you want to use UTXOs from multiple wallets that you own yourself, or if you're trying to sell an inscription by using PSBTs as the market announcement. And so PSBTs are super useful in making our transaction building easier for multiple parties together. And the way I understand descriptor process PSBT is if you get a PSBT, you might need to fill in some of the blanks because you might not know about an input yet or the person that, sorry, the, the wallet that created the PSBT might know what UTXOs they want to spend, but not have the whole UTXO set to fill in all the blanks. So a node that has all that information might be asked to backfill the PSBT to provide all the relevant information. And with descriptor process PSBT, we can now express the missing data from descriptors. I'm, I'm bungling this a little bit, but we basically it, it improves how we backfill the missing information and where we can look up that information to also include output descriptors, I think. Next PR is from Eclair, Eclair2668, which adds an upper bound on the fees paid during a forced close operation. And the background here is that it doesn't really make sense to pay more fees than the amount that we may personally have at risk during a forced close. So Eclair now computes the amount of funds that are at risk and compares that to some fee rate estimates and then acts accordingly. So you, you don't want to pay more in fees than you would be reclaiming. So this, there's, a, there's a fix to optimize for that and do some heuristics in the calculation so you don't do that anymore. Right. So this would happen in the context, for example, when you are participating in a multi-hop payment and you accept it to create a remote HTLC, as in you lock in funds to forward the multi-hop payment, but then the fee rates on the mempool are going up immensely. And now when the payment times out because the recipient doesn't pull it in, they're offline or something, we would have to go on chain in order to settle our channel in order not to lose those funds locked up in the HTLC. But 
of course, if we created the HTLC at a way lower fee rate environment, the HTLC itself might not be worth enough to go on chain for and force close and pay all this extra fee to, to process if the the risk, say, like 10 Satoshi payment is actually not worth it. So my understanding is that instead of force closing, they would just let that HTLC ride longer now. But uh, yeah, hopefully then also they wouldn't create new HTLCs at that high fee rate that are that low value, but they wouldn't also go into force closing when there's too little value riding on it. Next PR is also from Eclair, Eclair 2666, relaxing the reserve requirements on HTL receiver. And this is a mitigation for the stuck funds problem. And so in Lightning, there's Bolt 2, which part of Bolt 2 includes the a channel reserve requirement. And that's recommended in the spec to be 1% of the channel total as reserve. And the idea is that each side of a channel would maintain that reserve so that there's some funds to lose if either party were to try to broadcast an old revoked commitment transaction. So if, if you didn't have this reserve, then there, there would be no risk of loss of funds by, by broadcasting older transactions. And obviously, when a channel is initially opened, that reserve may not be met, but the protocols attempts to work towards meeting that reserve. And so the interplay between this, the, the reserve requirement and the stuck funds problem is a bit unclear to me. So Merch, perhaps you can elaborate if you're familiar. Otherwise, we can, we can try to see if Dave is still on. I am not super familiar, but Dave raised his hand. <laughs> yeah. So the, the issue here is that in a channel, you often get the case where most of the funds have moved to one side of the channel. So you had Alice and Bob, they have a channel together. And just through the natural course of operations, Bob now has 99% of the funds, and there's just 1% left for Alice. Now, in the protocol, it's required that the receiver of the HTLC be responsible for paying its fees. But if Alice only has 1% left, now she can't receive any money from Bob. Even if Bob wants to send her money, he, he can't because Alice is responsible for paying the fees, but the channel reserve requirement, that 1%, says that she has no money to spend. However, this doesn't actually make sense in this particular case because if Bob tries to send money to Alice, he tries to push money, well, if it succeeds, she's going to have the funds to pay the fees. And if it fails, well, there's no fee required. So it, it, this just re, you know removes a requirement that's not actually a, a, a mitigation for any threat in this particular case. And there's also a related PR to update the specification for this and for some other things that can lead to fun stuck problems. Thanks for jumping in there, Dave. Next change is to BTC pay server, and this is commit 97E7E, which begins setting the BIP78 min fee rate parameter. So the BTC pay server implements BIP78 in terms of pay join features. So you, you can actually do pay join features if you're running BTC pay server. However, this parameter, this min fee rate was not being set. And the way that pay join works is there is some interactivity between sender and receiver who both contribute some inputs to the transaction. And if the second party 
contributes an input while not also increasing the fee amount to this min fee rate parameter, it, it could result in a transaction whose fee is below the sender's minimum fee rate amount. And so if you're not communicating this parameter during that interactivity, you could run into scenarios like this. So we noted a bug report who, that actually came from a guest of ours who's working on PayJoin, who's Dan Gold, he, who was on with us last week, and he opened up this, this bug, which motivated the change to be more compliant with the spec. Merch, thumbs up. All right. And then the last PR for this week is to the BIPs repository. It is 1446, making a small change in a number of additions to BIP340 on Schnorr signatures. And we note that these changes don't affect how BIP340 is involved in consensus and signatures for Taproot and TapScript, but that it loosens the restriction that Schnorr signatures sign a message that is exactly 32 bytes. And I'm, I don't know the origin of the motivation for this relaxation of the signed message not needing to be 32 anymore. Merch, are you familiar with the motivation of why we don't need to sign exactly 32 bytes? I believe there was some discussion about some requirements on the implementations needing to hash something in order to get to those 32 bytes and that that was potentially an onerous thing and being able to sign a message of any size was then the result of that, which resulted in this change. I am not familiar, and this seems like a complex topic that I don't want to hazard getting into by just glancing at it too much. Dave, do you have thoughts on that particular topic? Why was this particular change made? The justification was just like you said, some programs might find it onerous to do this. You can implement, I think, but I believe you can, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to stick with Mercer's claim, which is this is a complex topic. I'm not qualified to talk about it, so I probably shouldn't. Sorry. Okay. Well, if you're involved with Schnorr signatures and BIP340, you may want to look at the spec to see if there's some changes that affect you or optimizations that you can make as a result of change in the spec. But Bitcoin unaffected. I don't see any requests for speaker access or comments on our Twitter thread, so... Maybe let me take a very tentative stab at it. It seems to be that if your message that you're trying to assign is already shorter than 32 bits, it would increase what you're signing, and that doesn't necessarily make sense. So if you want to sign shorter messages, it might be better to directly sign the original instead of hashing it and blowing it up to 32 bytes. But this is, again, just a very tentative read. And yeah, maybe we'll pick some of the author's brands meanwhile and get back to this if it's important. All right. We are just at the two-hour mark, which makes this one of the longest, if not the longest, podcast that we've done. I thank you all for joining us. I think we had a, a great discussion. Thanks to my co-host, Merch, as always. Thanks to Gloria for joining us, Dave Harding for joining us, Yost for joining us, and Barack for joining us and providing their insights on, on their proposals and, and prototypes of things that they're, they're working on. And we'll see you all next week for newsletter 254. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers.